0: I'm Arthur Snell. A major war is taking place on the European continent with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, bringing you a series of special episodes to help you understand the crisis as it unfolds. This is Doomsday Watch. Welcome back to Doomsday Watch. We hope you're finding these war bulletins valuable quick reminder that you can support our work on the crowdfunding app Patreon from as little as £3 per month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the link in the show notes. I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Samir Puri, who's a senior fellow at the International Institute of Strategic Studies based in Singapore. Perhaps more importantly for this discussion, he's also a veteran of observation of the ceasefire In the eastern Donbass region of Ukraine, a job that he did back in 2014 and 2015. And his book, Russia's Road to War, is published on the 25th of August, six months after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Samir, welcome.
1: Thanks very much for having me, Arthur. Great to be here.
0: Samir, it's so interesting, your background there. Um, Tell us about how you found yourself being an observer of a not very well observed, Ceasefire. This is after Russia's invasion of Ukraine in 2014,
1: the first invasion. Uh, How did that come about? Well, it really was an obscure job, so obscure that back in 2014 15, after the year I spent in Donbass, most people I told about it had no idea where the Donbass was when I got back to the UK. Some of them didn't even know that there was still a war going on in Ukraine. So imagine how far we've come. Now Ukraine is something that you can't, you know, sort of think beyond. Yeah. But how did I get there? Well, A decade before that, I did after graduating from university, is I ended up by chance being an election observer in Ukraine during what became the Orange Revolution in 2004, which basically meant driving around polling stations and sort of spotting the cheating that was going on as Russia's favoured candidate was trying to sort of manipulate the poll to, to become elected. Yeah. So fast forward a decade and the war breaks out. This is when MH17, the Malaysian airliner, was shot down. Crimea's annexation that that listeners will remember. Uh, So the call went out again through the OSCE that they were assembling this time a ceasefire monitoring mission. And I volunteered uh, because I knew Ukraine reasonably well. I had a real sort of personal kind of love for the country. And there I was then for that year in in 2014-15, sort of at the height of the first Russian invasion of Ukraine. Fascinating. Now, let, let's just help some of our listeners. OSCE, what, what, it, what is that? Well, that's the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. It's a sort of 57 member state international body. Um, it's kind of not very powerful, not very effective. It's been overshadowed by NATO and EU expansion in Eastern Europe. But the one thing it's got going for it is it's the only multilateral security body that has Russia and the Western states in it. Let's put it this way. When the Russians want a ceasefire monitoring mission that they can manipulate and control that won't really bring peace, they kind of turn to the OSCE because they can put their own people in there. Yeah. Um, I'm really interested to hear more about those
0: those Russian colleagues. Were, were they you know, undercover FSB officers or what, what
1: kinds of people were these? Well, there were all kinds of Russians bounding around uh, the Donbass. And anyone who's ever worked in a war zone, and Arthur, I include you very much in this, you will know war zones attract all kinds of oddballs, weirdos, volunteers, nutters. They certainly do. At at the one sort of end of it, you had the Russian colleagues. We had quite a few sort of ex-Moscow police officers in their sort of 60s, one of whom was one of my line managers at one point when I was based in Dnipropetrovsk. And, you know, whether you'd sort of trust them as far as you could throw them is, is one thing. The other thing, Arthur, which is really fascinating Is that in that first year of the war, the Russian armed forces had a fully uniformed colonel general also stationed in the Donbass that the Ukrainians had allowed in there? Fascinating stuff. And I think sort of these nuances are things that people don't quite appreciate about the way this conflict has sort of rumbled on and bubbled away uh, for sort of seven, eight years now. Yeah.
0: Now, uh, we will, of course, come on to the, the, the second uh, invasion of Ukraine this year's. But just to delve a bit more into that first chapter, which, as you ha- have observed, most of the world didn't really focus on very much. Of course, the shooting down of that Malaysian airliner, a terrible tragedy, a mass murder, uh, that was well covered at the time. But the fact that Russia had already invaded its neighbour in some respects... Uh, was not so well uh, covered. Now one of the big questions is this idea of, you know, are these separatists, are these Russian proxies, are these Russian military? And and even now, you know, on on social media in in public discussion, you can get into quite heated debates. If you refer to a Russian-backed separatist and and somebody of of a Ukrainian perspective will say, no no, these are Russians. You you can't you can't give them that sort of fig leaf of independence. So what were you seeing? What were the conclusions that you drew about who these people were?
1: Yeah, that, that's it's a really emotive topic, as you can imagine. So what I saw um, living out in Donbass, and I, I spent time, by the way, living on both sides of the old front line, a bit of time in the Donetsk People's Republic and more of my time on the government-controlled side. Honestly, I saw some families that had been, Ukrainian families, split in their allegiances, uh, you saw actual, you know, sort of former miners and, and sort of factory workers in Donetsk, Lahansk, other places, who'd bought into this idea that the Donbass was going to be annexed like Crimea. And there was actually some local disappointment in parts of the Donbass that they weren't. And that was, again, something that kind of just stayed unresolved. And how, how much of those uh,
0: motivations were purely, but also very understandably, economic? I mean, clearly... Ukraine is not a particularly rich country and and the far east of Ukraine if
1: I'm not mistaken is really quite underdeveloped yeah and that's something that I, I look at in in my book in the USSR until 1991 eastern Ukraine was actually more industrially and sort of urban urbanized sort of developed than the West oh. and the West was a bit more agrarian going back several decades because the Soviet Union just dumped in loads of money to develop the metallurgical industries and mining industries and other things in, in the Donbass. Since independence, the Donbass has withered as a sort of rust belt. Now, I say all that. Of course, lots of Donbass residents feel for the Ukrainian. Lots of them are fighting for Ukraine against Russia. And I think this identity schism is a really important thing that I think might actually start to become more relevant as the current conflict moves on and as we start to see possibly the fact that the Russians aren't ever going to leave the east of Ukraine. Yeah. I'm sure your book contains a, a, a lot
0: of juicy um, sort of anecdotes. So I, I don't want to sort of sp- steal that thunder, but maybe you could share with 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 us and the listeners. Were there any particular moments? I'm thinking because you know if you're a ceasefire observer, well, it wasn't a very well observed ceasefire,
1: as I understand it. Um, so uh, w- how sort of hot was this this role? Right. So this was crazy. So I'm I'm not a military man. I don't have a military background. Lots of my colleagues did. There were former artillery officers, infantry officers from UK and other militaries. And as unarmed ceasefire observers, it's a kind of a war zone safari. We had these up-armoured 4x4s. And obviously, if you start hearing loud bangs that are getting louder, you tend to drive the other way quite quickly. Yeah. So it was a pretty ramshackle way of judging ceasefire violations, which was counting loud bangs. And then, as it turns out, if you've got experienced artillery officer colleagues, they can tell you the difference between 155mm how it's howitzer and a mortar and all the rest of it. You make these quite rudimentary judgments about sort of the calibre of weapons. Other times, what we saw were parked pieces of artillery, you know, sort of in farmhouses. And there was a sort of a stipulation that certain calibres of weapons needed to be a certain number of kilometres away from the front line. And then if either side was in violation, you sort of file a report, which, to be honest with you, didn't do very much. But Arthur, just one quick anecdote mm. on this. Probably the most dramatic thing that I experienced was a cluster bomb attack in the town I was I was in. Wow. It was in Kramatorsk, tenth of February, twenty fifteen, and I mean it's horrendous. Uh, you know, you start seeing the, the big sort of orange clouds of explosions uh, sort of appearing behind the buildings that you're looking at, and then they're appearing closer, and then all the car alarms go off everywhere around you, and and the Russians were and the separatists, whoever pulled the trigger, you know, we don't know. They were trying to destroy the Ukrainian military HQ in that town, Kramatorsk, but it was pretty inaccurate. And they killed, I think, 16 civilians, some quite close to where we are standing. Pretty horrendous, really nerve wracking. And, and the thing I remember is sort of the weeks after, because I was living in that town, was the sort of stress on the faces of all the locals. And this is why I've been really, you know, really personally hit by, by this invasion is because that's now happening a hundredfold all across Ukraine. That aforementioned town, Kramatorsk, was bombed, the train station was bombed earlier in the year, killing, I think, 50 or so people. It's it's really striking, I think, for those people who've served in war zones to sort of remember the fact that it's not just about armchair generalship, maps, and, you know, who's winning, who's losing, and body counts. It's actually that sort of emotional inner story of sort of terror, triumph, you know, fear, anxiety, all these sorts of things. And, you know, to think that Ukraine's now suffering that, you know, as a nation collectively, and with no sort of end date in sight is is pretty horrifying.
0: It's worth noting, of course, that um, whilst Russia is not, I don't think, a signatory to the Cluster Munitions Treaty, it is a fairly consistent view internationally that these are illegal weapons.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and having seen the inaccuracy, I'm telling you, the, the people I saw who'd been killed were nowhere, nowhere near this airstrip that was ostensibly yeah. being bombed.
0: So at this time, sort of 2014-15, you were part of of an observation force, which by your own description, was almost designed to be a bit toothless. If you look back now, um, was there a version of that sequence that could have meant that Russia would not have taken its step that it took this year of a full-scale invasion of
1: Ukraine? That's a really good question. I think like the counterfactuals like on the one hand people will say well, why bother we know what happened but i think it is important and again i, I sort of look at the missed opportunities both before and after 2014 uh, in my book there's obviously a couple of things one of which is you know some listeners will be familiar that the minsk agreements uh they were the the, the ceasefire deal and sort of the de-escalation deal that we were supposed to be helping to implement as part of this osc mission and Minsk became a byword for failed conflict diplomacy. It basically would have forced the Ukrainians to allow the Donbass to have sort of separate elections and maybe a degree of devolution. But that would have led the Donbass to just slide slowly into Russia's control. Uh, and if it had stayed in, the, in Ukraine, it would have given the Russians a sort of a province. So I think Minsk wasn't really implementable. But I suppose the thing that hasn't really been looked at much because the current conflict is so emotive Is the fact that ukraine became more politically more implacably pro-western since 2014 understandably the russians nibbling bits of territory and killing its soldiers and civilians and so ukraine's drifting closer to nato in spirit if not towards membership but it's not in nato so it's never actually getting the protection that nato offers i i just think that there was there was never any meaningful diplomatic channel uh, through which to discuss uh, Ukraine's future in a way that would have allowed it to coexist with Russia and the West. There was a mutual exclusivity with the way both Russia and the West approached Ukraine. You kind of have to be in one camp or the other. And at that point, it's only a matter of time until Ukraine's doom becomes very apparent, I think. Yeah, there's so much there that that is uh, interesting to interrogate.
0: Now, of course, the the basic point is that it should be possible for Ukraine to choose whatever path it wants and and you know it's important to state that in case anybody thinks that we we're, we're saying anything different to that um but the, as as you've uh, identified there is this kind of mutual exclusivity issue isn't there so is is there a solution which doesn't involve the defeat of Russia in the field
1: yeah and and i just want to echo that point in no way am i saying that uh you know, Ukraine doesn't have the right to, of course, it has the right to choose. and Ukraine's actually its democracy is is thrived to a, to a great extent since I observed that flawed election back in two thousand and four. So you know there is choice, and Ukraine was oscillating towards the west because actually the you know the leadership wanted to, and they reflected you know real constituencies in Ukraine. right now, unscrambling this, uh, now that you know the dogs of war have been unleashed and we, we're seeing what we're seeing this year. There's only going to be a sort of a battlefield outcome that presages any kind of political settlement. I think the story since independence and since you know those key milestones I've pointed out, 2004, 2014, there were different formulations that could have helped Ukraine to avoid this fate. But there's one massive problem, Arthur, which is a lot of people are talking about kicking the Russians out totally, arming Ukraine to do so. Vladimir Zelensky is is understandably saying there's going to be no territorial concessions. He's recently saying we should also recapture Crimea because it's Ukrainian. There is a strange irony in this because the intact Ukraine that all of these arguments are pointing to is the Ukraine of 1991, which is almost identical to the Soviet Socialist Republic of Ukraine in its borders. And so there is this issue of whether the Soviet Socialist Republic of Ukraine bequeathing to independent Ukraine in 1991, this particular shape, one end of which touches places like Rostov and, and and you know that western part of Russia. Another part of which, on the other side, touches Poland. How you could guarantee that uh, going ahead, even if you can bring the hostilities to an end, is is I think a puzzle that will be, be beyond even the most skilled diplomats. Personally, I think.
0: So we we turn now to uh, the events of this year. You know, we're roughly six months since that first in, invasion. As a analyst of strategic affairs and so on. What do you see now in in the war as it is um, unfolding? Clearly, in the Donbas, the Russians have made quite a lot of progress. Uh, It sounds as though in the south of Ukraine, it's a bit more contested there. But is this slipping into a sort of frozen conflict? Or is there something that the Ukrainians might be able to do to kind of change the dynamic in in the coming weeks and months?
1: Yeah. And ever since February, I've never been, I think, intoxicated by the notion of a total Ukrainian victory. I mean, lots of people have been. There's lots of sort of Twitter armchair generals who are, you know, understandably sort of exhorting the Ukrainians to success. I think I've always felt that Ukrainian successful defense of Kiev and Kharkiv are actually poor analogies, certainly for the war in the Donbass and also to a certain extent, the war in the South. Very simply, one of the big differences is that, that some of the settlements in the Donbass are a lot smaller. You know, Kramatorsk and Slovyansk and Severodonetsk, These are sort of hundred, two hundred, three hundred thousand sort of towns, and the and they're actually they're more favorable to the kind of Russian advance that we've been seeing, which is flattening these places with their artillery, sort of cutting off routes of escape and sort of slowly moving across. The big uncertainty now is the possibility of Ukrainian counter-offensives and there's a lot of smoke and mirrors around this, I think. On the one hand, uh, the cost of a failed Ukrainian counteroffensive, I think, probably outweigh the benefits of a successful one in, in Kherson, in particular. And I just, I'll explain what I mean by that. So let's say you retake significant parts of the South, if you're the Ukrainians. You still have a really long way to go to inflict a strategic defeat on the Russians. That's only the first step. And if you try, if you wind the sort of, you know, the spring back of the Ukrainian offensive and and let it unleash it against the Russians and it bounces off them for whatever reason, then you've got the massive issue of confidence in Ukraine dropping, especially amongst some of the maybe less committed international supporters of Ukraine. And the idea that Ukraine needs to be fed in sort of a a sort of an indefinite flow of ammunition and arms and should be encouraged to keep fighting keep fighting keep fighting you might find some contending voices which i think comes down to sort of the bottom line this is your question is are we seeing a frozen conflict um there's a high likelihood that there is going to be some degree of de facto if not de jure partition in ukraine because i i also think that the incentives for ukraine to fully push the russians out of donbass are quite low partly because, as I say, Kiev has had a contested regional relationship with the Donbass anyway. Uh, And finally, I think because actually the Russians could dig in, and I just don't see them giving it up. And I also don't see the Ukrainians being able to mount a counteroffensive 10, 15, 20 kilometers away from the Russian border. At that point, the Russians can shell them from Russia. And I think that changes uh, the military dynamics quite dramatically. So if we take that
0: argument, it feels very likely that at some point we return to a version of what you were uh, grappling with in in your job, your OSCE job, that there will be, uh, we hope, some kind of ceasefire. But then then there's a question of, well, how do you police, monitor and stabilise? Because feels reasonable to say, with no disrespect to the work you did, that the OSCE is not the best organisation for that?
1: Or is that unfair? No, I think that's fair, Arthur. And as I said, the Russians signed off on that old OSCE monitoring mission because they knew it was never going to solve the conflict. We weren't UN blue helmets, let's put it that way. But I think the really important thing is where we're now, you will be cancelled On Twitter, if you suggest there should be a peace deal, there is a huge Ukraine victory lobby that I have immense sympathy for. And, you know, in my heart of hearts, I'd love it for Ukraine to to sweep the Russians off the game board and, you know, take back control of the full territory to move back to their northern, eastern, southern borders as they once were. I just don't think it's going to happen. And I think it's because I've got that view of, of being in the country, seeing how large it is, seeing these some of the regional variations, seeing some of the complexities that be involved in extending the sort of operations Ukraine successfully pulled off around Kiev to, to the nether regions of Ukraine as well. And if that's the case, then we might we might see six months, a year, two years more of, sci- sort of violence, of warfare, of sort of battlefield sort of to and fro. Who knows how long it'll go on for. But at some point it's got to end. And so we are looking at uh, a possible uh, bisected Ukraine. And and in my book, I I drop the analogy of Cyprus, believe it or not, even though it's a poor analogy because Cyprus is a small island. People forget that the Turkish invasion of 1974 bisected Cyprus and the Turks never left the one third that they took. And, And little things like that. And even something like Kashmir, for example, I was talking to. Uh, you know, uh, sort of a contemporary of mine who knows a lot about Kashmir. We're talking about these sort of scenarios that you'd never think about now because you're still thinking about these Ukrainian counter-offensives. But I think eventually we're going to be starting to think about how to bring this to an end. We're talking a lot here about uh, how this conflict might
0: reach a state of ceasefire, if not formal conclusion. One question might be, what realistically could Ukraine achieve to enable it to at least have the confidence to enter some kind of negotiation with Russia?
1: On the map, I think it's very simply this. Sadly, it's, it's probably the end of Ukrainian control of the Donbass, but Ukrainian control more or less everywhere else. And that's why I think there's so much focus on Kherson and the south. If Ukraine can actually restore a bit more of its access to its southern coastline, I think there's still a question as to whether it can get Mariupol back, and I don't think it will. Uh, it may actually get a bit closer back towards Mariupol, but at that stage you've got a position in which Putin, despite the fact he wanted to completely conquer Ukraine, he'll be able to say, Well, I spoke about liberating the Donbass, and that's what I've done. Whereas Ukrainians will have a viable southern coastline. The big unanswered question there is about the fate of Crimea. And I think it's a bit too important to Putin's prestige. And to Russia's sort of self-conception, that I think you'd, you're going to have serious problems if if the Ukrainians attempt to retake Crimea. There's also a question of how they would, because obviously it's a peninsula, so it's pretty hard to get to in in numbers uh, all of a sudden. So I I don't still don't think that's militarily realistic. But I think that's the sort of the the stasis point that is I think not unreasonable to to project you know a year or so into this is a loss of Ukrainian control of, of, of much, if not all, of the Donbass.
0: There are lots of taboos in all of this. Uh, I think it's, it has sort of been a taboo for reasons that are understandable, that you know, uh, there are Western countries uh, that have decided to support Ukraine and don't want to be seen to in any way uh, pressure Ukraine to accept a carve up of their country so how do you navigate that question
1: yeah it's a really difficult question because no one wants to be undermining ukraine's you know right to defend itself and all the sacrifices it's making no one wants to empower russia to achieve some kind of success i'm simply talking from a position of of realism here that actually you're going to find that these are neighboring countries and they've somehow got to coexist next to each other going into the future that that's just a, a bottom line fact and Something I think that has been totally forgotten, because diplomacy isn't really a a big feature of this conflict still, is that bilateral talks between Russian and Ukrainian negotiators began four days after the invasion. It's it's worth actually revisiting that, if for no other reason than that the the actual chief negotiator sent by the Russians, Vladimir Medinsky, seems to be an absolute lunatic in terms of his view of history and view of everything. I don't know why they sent us an amateur historian to head their uh, sort of Ostensible peace delegation, but actually I think Putin wanted to impose a victor's peace and then found the Russian the Ukrainians fought back So we've had that initial burst of diplomacy, which didn't go anywhere. We've got the diplomacy mediated by the Turks with the UN uh, You know helping certainly to bring, you know, bring grain supplies back into into the world from Ukraine's uh, ports that it still controls but I come back down to Cyprus, which is, you know, without trying to cast aspersions on anyone, the Turks are mediating this. And yet the Turks are the only European country, or country, sorry, that have intervened in, in a European country and bisected it successfully and maintained that, that bisection for plus 40 years. Unless something totally turns the situation on its head, and, you know, there are still many twists and turns to come. Of course. And I'm simply talking on the basis of, of what the trend lines seem to be suggesting, where we're sitting six months in. Yeah. I just want to kind of conclude this uh, with your sense of where the
0: international coalition is on on all of this. There may be situations which are frozen, which come out of this conflict. What what is the right uh, course of action
1: for NATO countries in response to that? Well, certainly for NATO countries, it's uh, to defend themselves, and I, I totally understand. I mean, that's the bedrock of NATO, and you know, NATO will defend every inch of its territory. I think one of the interesting things that comes out of, of this, from where I'm sitting, is for totally unrelated reasons, when this invasion kicks off, I, I was actually sitting in Singapore uh, for work, and I've sort of seen a different side to the global response, which is actually quite worrying, I have to say. I think if you're sitting in, in a NATO country, you may be very caught up in, in the assumption that there's a sort of a united moral outrage against Russia's heinous actions and sort of a degree of consensus that even if you're a bit of a laggard in sanctioning Russia you can understand the point of it. Well, I tell you, when you sort of think of the Chinese reaction, uh, the Indian reaction, even the Indonesian reaction, you know, Indonesia is not doing this because it wants Russia to win. There's just a general malaise around taking up a, a, what is seen as a Western moral crusade. And so you've got quite a few countries that are either not fully sanctioning Russia, or not sanctioning it at all. Um, but then you've got somewhere like Turkey, that is actually doing doing a decent bit of trade with Russia, is keeping it sort of Air lanes open and its beaches open to Russian tourists who love going there. And you've got a really variegated response all around the world, which I think is actually going to be quite problematic in, as this conflict rumbles into sort of one year, two years, three years, is the fact you can get a great deal on buying Russian oil and gas if you want to. And a lot of countries are going to keep doing that. And that will leave NATO in a very curious position, which is, I think, quite inward looking position, which is defending itself. But not necessarily being able to corral a really large global coalition against Russia, even at the level of sort of enforcing sanctions. Now, I take a quite pessimistic view on this, others take a very optimistic view. And, you know, but I think that's what I sort of draw the people's attention to is the fact that Russia, of course, territorially primarily sits in Asia. So just remember that the North Atlantic Treaty Organization doesn't sit in Asia. And this will complete Russia's transition, as some Russian Eurasianist thinkers have long since argued, that it should become much more active in Asia. figure about the sanctimonious Europeans, say some Russians, who never liked us in the first place. That's something that's going to be accelerating, I think, in the next few years. Fascinating. Mia Puri, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thanks for having me, Arthur. Great to be here.
0: We hope you find these war bulletins valuable amongst the huge amount of information out there. So don't forget to subscribe and help spread the word by rating us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other app that has ratings. And if you really like the show, you can support us on the crowdfunding app Patreon. You'll get the shows early, ad free, and help shape future episodes, all from as little as £3 per month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch follow the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.